Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello and welcome to the Naked Scientist's Newsflash, where we take a weekly look at what's hot in the world of science. This week's episode is brought to you by Chris Smith and Helen Scales, and I'm Ben Valsler. Coming up, how reading motor signals and controlling a computer game could allow paralysed limbs to move once again. By recording that neurological chit-chat from the motor area in the brain and using a computer to decode it, they're able to get a monkey with a paralysed arm to learn to play a computer game just by the power of thought. Controlling a computer game being the first step towards feeding those signals back into paralysed limbs. We'll also be hearing how the colour of your dreams could depend on the colour of your childhood TV set. The new study has provided more support for a theory that's been around for quite a while, that people who only watched black and white television and movies as children also dream in black and white instead of colour. And why releasing an alien insect may be the only way to defeat an invasion from an alien plant. And the idea is that by uh, sort of, uh, producing a sort of slightly more level playing field, you've tipped the advantage in favour of people who are actually trying to control the plant. That's all on the way. This week, scientists have made a giant step forward, really, in a bit of work which might help people who are paralysed because they've had a spinal cord injury to get moving again. They've shown this just using monkeys to start with, but monkeys are a very good model for how humans work, so we think the same technique should work in people. This is Chet Moritz and his colleagues. They're based at Washington University in Seattle, and they've got a paper describing what they've done in this week's edition of the journal Science. Now, their approach has been to put an electrode into the brain, and specifically the motor area of the brain, where the brain encodes signals about what it's planning to do in terms of making movements. Now, in people who injure their spinal cord, the major problem is that those planned motor movements can't get from the brain down to the connections to the muscle so the person can move. And the brain and spinal cord, when you injure them, do not regenerate or repair themselves very well if at all. So we need to find a way to bypass that break. What these guys have done is by recording that neurological chit-chat from the motor area in the brain and using a computer to decode it and then turning the computer signals back into a stimulatory signal that's fed into the muscles of the monkey's arm, they're able to get a monkey with a paralysed arm, just temporarily paralysed with some anaesthetic, to learn to play a computer game just by the power of thought. And they've shown that just by recording from a couple of nerve signals, the brain of the monkey can very quickly learn to adapt how it responds to the screen uh, where the monkey's playing a video game so that the monkey can move its paralysed limb. Early days yet, but very exciting, because what this reveals is that we should be able to do the same thing in humans and therefore help people who have these kinds of injuries to get mobile. Sounds fantastic. Well, from things going on in the brain to something else that happens in the brain. Chris, do you dream, when you dream at night, do you dream in black and white or in glorious technicolour? I definitely have colour dreams. You dream, you dream in colour. Well, whatever your answer might be, it could well depend on what sort of TV you watched as a child because a new study has provided more support for a theory that's been around for quite a while that people who only watched black and white television and movies as children also dream in black and white instead of colour. Now, this study comes from Eva Merzen from the University of Dundee here 
here in the UK. And she basically tried to address the age-old problem, one of the problems with dream studies, which is how to accurately get people to report what happens in their dreams. Because as you all know, I'm sure, um, you very, very quickly forget what happens in your dreams. And it's easy to kind of mould that idea um, a bit later on in the day, even, you know, a few, uh, half an hour after you've woken up. And what she did was she recruited 60 people to her study. Half of them were under 25, half of them were over 55. And she gave them a questionnaire to find out what sort of TV they watched as a child and what dreams they were what dreams they were having. And these are the sorts of methods that were used a while ago, um, back in the 50s, when people were still reported that they were dreaming in black and white. She also did something where she asked them to, her subjects, to complete a dream diary as soon as they woke up, which is the sort of technique that was introduced a bit later on when people started suddenly saying that they were dreaming in colour, which is, does seem to be what happened, that there was this very quick change through time in the 20th century to colour dreaming. Now, she found that exposure to black and white TV as a child could still really quite strongly influence the dreams you have 40 years later. In the younger age group, she found that only less than 5% actually of people dreamed in black and white um, and of the older folk um, who did have access to colour TV, around 7% of them still dream in black and white, whereas 25%, quite a lot higher, of the older age group who only had black and white TV as young people still dream in black and white. One wonders what extent recall bias plays a role here though and whether um, you could actually do a study where you took those people who say that and then expose them to a lot of colour TV and see if it does distort their dreams or perhaps they just really like plugging into really rubbishy old movies. Well it's it's all it's all quite mysterious still I have to say and one of the theories about what's actually what determines our dreams uh, in a kind of long term sense is that perhaps they're quite plastic up to the age of around 12 so you maybe you'd have to do this with young kids and then they'd be dreaming black and white for the rest of their lives I don't but know. It depends if it's ethical to it expose them ethical. to some of the rubbish that was on television in black and white. Absolutely sure. I don't know but it's all about the emotions of movies and that could well be in television we get so wrapped up in it and that could be why we dream in those colours. I mean, perhaps the only way of finding out for sure what people are dreaming, what colour they're dreaming is, is to take people who can lucidly dream and control their dreams and somehow come up with a signal um, while they're actually dreaming for them to say, yes, black and white or colour, and while they're actually in their sleep. But that's also difficult because you may be influencing the way they control their dreams. But um, I also want to know, what about the people who watch no TV at all? Quite. And one other thing is that I had a friend who was blind who said to me that some of his friends who went blind later in life loved going to sleep because it meant that they could see again and also they could recognise or remind themselves what colours look like. So those people definitely dreamed in colour. Those people were older because this friend of mine was in his 70s when he died and he had friends of a similar age. And so his friends were saying that they'd gone blind in later years and they dreamed in colour. So I'm not entirely sure that television is that much of an influence, but I, but I buy the fact that you're saying that it, it, it might kind of tip the balance a bit. It could be interesting and it's all maybe about partly what we think we should be dreaming. And if everyone says they're dreaming in colour, then you might well just you know, convince yourself that you are. Don't know. Very mysterious, but rather wonderful as well. Let's wind the clock back about four billion years or so to the origins of life on Earth. There's been a controversy raging for many years about where the building blocks of life, in other words, the complex molecules that our cells use to assemble all of the things, such as the enzymes and other machines in the cell that, that make cells viable, where those chemicals come from. And about 50 years ago, a scientist who was very interested in this was Stanley Miller. He was working at the University of California at San Diego, and he had got into the idea 
idea that perhaps the conditions on early Earth were sufficient to spawn the chemistry that produced all these building blocks. And so he decided to recreate a sort of mock-up early Earth in his laboratory. And the way he did that was by having a, a flask in which he put some water, which he could boil. And out of the top of this little round flask, he had a spout that the steam could come out, and it would go into a very big round flask, like a, a spherical flask. And in there, he had two big tungsten electrodes, and he could detonate lightning to go between them. And so he added to this apparatus some water, some ammonia, some hydrogen, and also some methane, which were gases we know were in abundance on the early Earth. And he set this thing discharging and running for a while, and then he analysed the deposits that built up inside. And he was able to show, in 1953, published a paper in Science, he had found at least five amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins that we think are essential for our cells to be able to work. So this kind of suggested that the Earth was a very good melting pot in its early years. It could make the complex chemicals we need for life. Thing is, lots of people said, well, this is a bit artificial and five chemicals doesn't make a viable organism, does it? And, and this kind of got consigned, quite literally, to the shelf because Stanley Miller died last year, but Jeffrey Bader, who still works at University of California at San Diego, was his PhD student. And when Stanley Miller died, he gave all the things in his lab to Jeff Bader, who found out from someone else about the existence of this cardboard box on a shelf in his lab. And so he went to this shelf and there was this cardboard box with all of Stanley Miller's apparatus in it, including hundreds of little flasks, which were the original flasks that contained the products of all of these reactions he'd done. And so he thought, what would happen if we subject these to modern day chemical analysis using modern techniques? So they took some of the flasks and they've got a paper in this week's Science where they show uh, feeding these um, deposits back into complex machines that will analyse them carefully today and they've not found five amino acids they actually stopped analysing when they got to nearly 30 chemicals of complex molecules that had been made in this apparatus and his argument is well this adds a lot of credence to the idea that the earth was a very prolific spawner of these kind of molecules there could have been volcanoes would have splurged up water and lots of these gases. There would have been lightning storms. And so the conditions that Stanley Miller envisaged 50 years ago or more could well have existed and probably did produce the complex chemistry that we depend on ultimately today. It's quite astonishing that something sitting on a dusty old shelf could really have been overlooked all that time and then suddenly brought back to life with the modern wonders of, of the scientific um, advances. But I'm going to wind the clock back forwards again, staying in the natural world and to coral reefs, one of my favourite places, and the fish that spend their lives picking clean other bigger fish. And if they, they will, if they work in pairs, it seems, they actually will provide a more honest valley service than when they work on their own, showing that it probably pays to cooperate and behave. Now, this is a according to a study in the journal Science this week from the, a team led by Redwan Bashari from the University of Neuchatel in Switzerland. Now, if you've ever been diving on a coral reef, if you've been lucky enough to do that, or if you've watched a TV documentary, you might have seen something called a cleaning station, which is where small cigar-shaped fish called wrasse and also um, some types of prawn congregate and actually dance around and advertise their services for hire as cleaners. And they pick off bits of muck and dead scales and parasites from other fish. Now, when cleaner fish work in pairs, they're posed with a prison dilemma. Should they cheat on their client fish and on their partners by taking a mouthful of nutritious mucus instead of plucking off a parasite? Because it turns out that cleaner fish actually much rather eat mucus than do their proper job of cleaning. But when they do, it's usually their last mouthful because it gives their clients a nasty nip and sends them swimming off in a huff. So honest members of a cleaning duo run the risk of actually losing out twice over because if their cheating partner sends off the client when they themselves haven't actually had a morsel of mucus to enjoy. But this new study actually suggests that as long as the fish being cleaned 
decides when it's time to leave, um, the cleaner fish working in pairs are much less likely to cheat than when they work on their own. And so the implication is that the model fits what we see? Basically, yes. This was a model that was worked on a computer. They then went out and looked out, looked on coral reefs at what was going on and found that there was much more honesty, much less nipping. And actually, there's a sort of, you can see the big fish kind of um, jolt. And that's because uh, they were like, oh, ow. They haven't maybe actually got to the point of swimming off, but they've definitely been nipped. And that happens much less when, when, part, when they're working in partnership. So, yes, it, it definitely pays off because obviously the, the pair fish, the pair of fish are getting more food and, and the, uh, the client fish is getting cleaner. So it works for everyone. And this could also apply to other other things in the natural world that work in partnerships like that, like nitrogenous bacteria in roots. And there's a type of butterfly that helps, that um, allows ants to, um, to stay and defend it by giving them sugary secretions to feed them on. So there's all these partnerships and they're very stable and, and work very well. Thank you, Helen. You do a wonderful impression of a fish being nipped. Brilliant. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. Now, also in the news this week is a new way to fight back against an invasion of aliens. Now, we're not talking about little green men from space. We're actually talking about plants that have been moved from one country to another. And when they move to the new country, they become a highly invasive species. And one here in the UK, which came to us originally from Japan, was the Japanese knotweed, Fallopia japonica. Now, it's a very pretty plant, has nice white flowers, but once it gets into the wild, it goes absolutely mad and it starts pushing out all of the native species scientists are suggesting that perhaps we should bring in another species to deal with this now we've heard this story before in other countries and it's turned out to be an absolute disaster so we thought we'd go to someone who might know the answer as to whether this is a good idea or not someone who's worked on knotweed for a very long time that's john bailey from the university of leicester hello john oh, good evening welcome to the naked scientists just just tell us a little bit if you wouldn't mind about knotweed what is it well, basically, it's in the polygonum family, which we know mostly as docks and things like that. And it's part of a giant herb community. And it's actually herbaceous. Although it grows to sort of two or three metres a year, it dies down and the resources are preserved in uh, a woody rhizome. So why is it such a pest? Um, well, there's, it's, there's nothing magic about it. If you found a rosette that had just started to grow and weed killed it, it would, uh, it would kill it stone dead. The problem is that uh, in established colonies, um, there are enormous uh, amounts of biomass stored under the soil, you know, going down some metres. Metres underground, it's actually got rootstock from which it can regenerate a plant. Uh, technically, they're rhizomes, so they're woody stems, and uh, I've got some pieces of wood from these things, and, you know, it could do someone a nasty injury with them, you know. So they're pretty robust. Yeah. What are the scientists suggesting this week that we do in order to weed out the problem? Well, basically, um, one of the reasons it's so successful over here is that it's left all its predators behind. I mean, in Japan, you rarely see an undamaged plant. And the idea is that by uh, sort of uh, producing a sort of slightly more level playing field, you've tipped the advantage in favour of people who are actually trying to control the plant. What pest are the scientists suggesting that we bring into the UK in order to get rid of this plant? It's actually a little bug, a true bug, Athelaria itadori, and uh, it's a sort of leaf sucker. And in laboratory tests, it's proved uh, very encouraging. How do you test out whether or not something's going to have knock-on effects? So it might just start t uh, tackling the knotweed, but then it might develop a taste for other native species and... As it's another invasive animal, it might then cause more of a problem. Yeah, quite. Well, I mean, we, I mean, the testing is as uh, sort of comprehensive as possible. So first, it's what's called a centrifugal host testing. So first of all, you look at species related to the target plant, so particularly crop plants, so perhaps rhubarb, buckwheat, 
any any endangered species. I think we have a species of dock that's uh, shore dock that's endangered. Secondly, you look at host plants as species closely related to the candidate organism. Uh, then unrelated plants with morphological or biological characters in common with target. Because although some insects are very good taxonomists, others will go for particular biochemical um, parts of the plant. And then finally, a range of crop plants, particularly those that have never been exposed to the candidate agent before. But there's not really any substitute for the real world, and then there's always the danger that you might have missed something, isn't there? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you... (laughs) You can't cover absolutely every eventuality. You can just sort of, uh, you know, within within the sort of 99%, uh, you know, assurance. And finally, John, do you think this will actually solve the problem? Well, I say it certainly won't be a magic bullet, and the people promoting it don't believe that either. I mean, you've still got to carry on educating people about not removing these plants, about not sort of spreading these plants, and you've also got to carry on with the conventional control measures. And, of course, not introduce them in the first place. Thank you very much, Dr John Bailey from the University of Leicester. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. The Naked Scientist News Flash featured Chris Smith and Helen Scales and was produced by me, Ben Valsler. If you enjoyed the News Flash, why not try out the weekly Naked Scientist podcast featuring news, interviews with top scientists, your questions and a weekly science experiment for you to try out at home. We'll be back with another rounder for what's hot in the world of science next week. So until then, goodbye. The Naked Scientist Newsflash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.